It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio. Flavored with a dash of humor. Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. Your questions, comments, and participation are always welcome on Facebook and Instagram at The Mike Novak Show and at Mike Now on Twitter. Good planets are hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. And true currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. Good planets are in the main. Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Jet streams, perfect air. And here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Nova. Good planets are in the main And good morning, uh, everyone. Good morning. Dan I'm... Cross has checked in. Amos Barrow has checked in. Hey, guys, good morning. Oh, boy, some of these people are here quick. I don't even know if uh, oh, there we go. Uh, and I'm. Uh, it is a drizzly morning. Uh, I wanted to wish a friend of the show a happy birthday. I know you, you weren't going to mention it, but it's, it was Basil's birthday yesterday. Ah! Uh, and uh, where's my other dinger? Let's get it over here. And and Santa says, happy birthday, Basil. Um, and I will tell him he's out on the front porch, two closed doors away. <laughs> you know, it's funny, though. I was watching one of the news shows the other day. And during an interview, it was Brian Williams, who, by the way, is uh, leaving MSNBC. Hmm. Um, really? Yeah. Not sure what that's all about. Who knows what uh, what the the latest thing is? But he's interviewing this woman. Uh, very serious matters, you know. Late night uh, <laughs> news program. Yes. Yep, 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 yep. And the tie. And one of the women woman's uh, dogs start just started barking. I mean, and just barked through the whole segment. Um, I love it. And uh, I, I, all I could think of is, you know, Basil is much more well behaved than that. Um, so, uh, and and as I said, and we've said before, I love it when we have animal sounds on mm-hmm. on the show, and and kids, you know, uh, photo bombing, um, and whatever. That's cats that, walking across the keyboard. Cats walking across the keyboard. It's reality, <laughs> folks. That's the way yeah, it works. I, yeah, that's that's one of the, I think that the more positive sides of everybody working from home the last couple of years and everything being done on Zoom. That yeah things have relaxed a little bit and, and, and real life starts showing. Yeah. Cats, dogs, kids, yeah. garbage trucks, uh, whatever. And it, it, it's, you know, it's all part of being at home. Um, mm-hmm. This is your environment. This is uh, where you are. And so uh, it's, it's okay with me. I, I, you know, I love it when we have Jessica Chipkin on from Crate Free USA and her birds squawking. Uh, and, and that's, that's, that's good. That's good radio, my friend, uh, as a, yep. as we used to say in the, in the radio biz, uh, although back in the radio biz, it was, oh my goodness, you know, and people, and people were always, um, 
more uh, respectful than I was about that whole thing. Well, I, I don't want to cause a problem. I'm like, no, 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 no. I want sound effects. I want, I want, I want life. I want life in the program. So, so of we course, keep our audience awake. Yes, that's it. <laughs> exactly. Well, but here's, here's the problem. Um, speaking of life, you know, my cat, the first thing my cat does is go away. So I'm not going to have cats cross the keyboard here because she's, uh, she's probably upstairs doing this right now. Okay. Big round cat napping. <laughs> For those of you who are, are listening on the podcast, you're not seeing the photo of my cat on a round pillow and she's, she's standing on her head. She sleeps on her head. I love it. It's one of, <laughs> it's one of the funniest things she does. She sleeps oh. on her head uh, like that a lot. That's her tropical pillow. Um, uh-huh. and, that's uh, not her suitcase. That's not, no. Okay. She, all right. This is, here's the thing about my kitty gets whatever she wants. That's part of the problem. We have a red suitcase, <laughs> a red rolling suitcase in, uh, which you will never see if, well, I might have to do a photo of it sometime because it is, <laughs> it has been torn to it shreds. It was a suitcase once in its life. It was once a suitcase. It's in the living room. No, it's in the dining room. It's under this table, basically, where I'm <laughs> doing the show. And she has torn it apart. This is and 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 she, she lies on her side, and and does it from her side and scratches it. And then you have to come and scratch her back, and then you have to scratch her belly, and then she scratches the suitcase some more. And then oh, she's got you trained. Oh, totally. Oh, I am. <laughs> I am so in the the palm of her paw. You cannot believe it. Um, and. Uh, and then she runs to my briefcase, my black briefcase, which unfortunately <laughs> I left on the floor once. And Uh-oh. and now that's another scratching post. Now, that one's not quite completely destroyed yet, but she runs from the red uh, tattered suitcase to my black briefcase in the living room <laughs> and then lies on her side. And then I got to scratch her. And, and uh, it's all a ritual. You come in the house. If we've been out, we come in the back door, she's run into the suitcase or she's run into the briefcase. Um, you, we're so, or she's up on the sofa pr- probably too sometimes. Uh, not much. She doesn't like climbing up on the sofa, really. There's a little black yeah. pillow. There's, there's a black pillow there. I guess I can get rid of that. Um, I just yeah. Yeah, wake up to, on the sofa when you, get, when you get a briefcase and a suitcase. You know? Exactly. And a black pillow next to the sofa uh, with all your fur on it. That you can just, uh, which I have to vacuum every now and then because there's so much fur. Uh, um, it's but that messes it up. She she owns us. Okay, she she totally owns us. But especially, <laughs> you know, I shouldn't even say Kathleen so much. She owns me. All right, and uh, she's got you figured out. <laughs> totally figured. I am such a wuss uh, when it comes to my kitty. So there you go. All right, one more thing. I I have to not one more thing. We got a lot on the show today. By the way. Um, this is uh, our nonsense conversation at this point, but it's not nonsense because we're going to get into some stories, some environmental and gardening stories mm-hmm. before we bring on our main guest, uh, at nine 30. Uh, and that is Robert Couric, uh, who's written this massive book, uh, with the sticky tabs in it, uh, sustainable food gardens and it's myths and solutions. Um, if you want to grow stuff in your yard and you want to do it with fewer inputs and uh, take advantage of the world around you to produce uh, the food you grow, uh, you, 
you might want to pick up this book because, uh, hey, it just might make a great Xmas present. Uh, San- mm. Santa Claus agrees. Santa's, Santa's giving oh, the uh, thumbs up. Ho, ho, ho. Um, and uh, and it's uh, even on sale right now. And uh, just so you know. Yeah, it just launched in October. Uh, yeah, I mean, it just it just got published. Uh, and uh, until January 1st, and we've got the link on my website. Go to MikeNovak.net. Um, uh, by the way, 486 full-color pages. Full-color. You know all about what it is trying to print up full-color stuff, Peggy. Um, mm-hmm. 453 illustrations, 4,000 entries in a 22-page in index. index. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, until January 1st. Uh, the sixty nine ninety five list price is only fifty dollars. So there you go. Great, so you save twenty. It's a great holiday gift. Just don't put it in a Christmas stocking. It's a little heavy. It will not fit. It it will. <laughs> or you could put a certificate for it. Yeah. In, in, mm-hmm. And that's what I tell people to do. So Robert's going to be here uh, this morning. He, uh, he's in uh, Northern California, so he has uh, graciously gotten up early uh, to be part. Of the show, uh, so it's it's frightfully early there in uh, California uh, at this moment. So, but I that... bet it's not as chilly, windy, and dark outside. Which Mr. DeMaio will be joining us at ten thirty. Hey, look, uh, Giovanna Chapman is here. I haven't seen uh, her name there in a, in a long time. Welcome. And I don't know how do you pronounce your first name? Is it Giovanna or Javona or I I really don't know. Uh, you let yeah, Giovanna, it might be. Um, and uh, send us a pronunciation guide there. Uh, she says hi. I know that's not the pronunciation guide, but uh, <laughs> but I have to I have to do one thing uh, right now. Uh, I and and please bear with me because yes, yeah, uh, she says yes, Giovanna. Giovanna, oh, okay, Giovanna, uh, absolutely. All right, so we're gonna, we'll bear with you. Yeah, uh, 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 bear with me. Fun? Holiday uh, fun? It's it's kind of holiday fun, but it's holiday fun in a kind of uh, different way. I have to play this. And maybe I, I, I won't play it uh, all the way through, but we got to get to the... I know, it's hurting some of our ears. It's, it's, it is? Oh, oh, I know. Well, yeah, if you're a fan of uh, Ohio State or of Northwestern or of no, Iowa. No one's a fan of Ohio State. You know, that's true. I don't know anybody. Who, of course, uh, they've all... <laughs> I would admit to it. People have said that about Michigan over the years as well. So, you know, and I never understood why people hated Michigan so much because all they did was lose to Ohio State, at least for the last 20 years. That changed last week, and now they're Big Ten champs. John Philip Sousa himself said this was the greatest fight song uh, for a college ever written. So there you go. All right. That's that. I had to play that. I just, you know, because I haven't had a chance. I, let me put it this way. Uh, go do your little happy dance. That's right. Well, I was doing that last night. 
while I was putting the show together. Uh, all right, Cindy. Oh, how we hate Ohio State. Uh, that's it. That was always the cheer. That was always the cheer. At, and there were a lot of other ones. Some I can't say um, in mixed company. And I'll just say go cats anyways. Yeah, there you go. Go cats. So that I, I had to do that. And, okay, now, you, and you mentioned also um, in honor of the holidays, you want you wondered if we were going to do a little something. And, and I do have to do... Uh, a little something that has been kind of a tradition on this show for the last few years. Oh! 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 These! Oh! 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 I love! Oh! 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 These! I love! I love! Shut up, Wesley! Okay, there we go. Wasn't there video to go with that, too? No, uh, I don't think so. That was that was always audio. I thought Randall had done video for that at one point. Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. I th- I think all we ever had was the audio for that. But that was the late that, great of course, Randall who put that. Although he's not well, dead. He's not late. He's no, not I know. Late. I know. He's just we just don't work with him anymore. But uh, no. um, but that for those who are wondering what in the world is that? That's the Prairie Doff, the BBC going. Alan, 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 Steve. Exactly. That's. That is this. Oh no, no, that's no, the no, wrong that's one. The no, that's the marmot. I meant, I meant. All right, Dan Cast is holding his ears right yeah, now. I know. I meant to play. Alan, Alan. Oh, there we go. Alan, 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 out, Alan. All right, and plus a little Star Trek thrown in there, and um, and a Shut little. Shut up, Wesley. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Right. Well, All right. Now uh, for something completely different. I'll shut up, Wesley. Okay, there we go. It's getting a lot of hearts on Facebook, so that's good. Oh, good. If they like uh, all the uh, all the stuff, let's uh, let's get to a couple of stories here. Um, yes, please. And, and, uh, now, <laughs> now, now, we were gonna, you know, and one thing we might discuss with um, Rick DeMaio a little bit later on too, but we can get into more detail because he sent me. Uh, uh, 44,000 graphics uh, to put up this morning. Uh, so we'll be, we'll be, uh, <laughs> we'll be done about uh, 3 p.m. Uh, yeah, so, today. So, so before we start talking about oh, right, all right, right, the nasty right. weather he's sending our way. Yes. I mean, that's coming our way. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, fall leaves, fall leaves, oh, we can still see them. Or where were we headed? Well, no, 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 no. I think before we did that, we were going to mention uh, the meeting uh, coming up. Oh, yes. Uh, That was because we'll mention it now and we'll mention it again. Yeah. Uh, So we, yeah, we've been covering Save Belbow Prairie and the whole Belbow Prairie issues happening with the Rockford Airport. Yeah. Just so real briefly at Chicago International, uh, Chicago Rockford International International Airport, there is. Uh, a prairie kind of smack in the middle of it, and it is a, a remnant dry gravel prairie. Um, the airport announced plans that they were going to do an expansion at the airport. And um, since they did that announcement, it basically basically when the bulldozers showed up in August, people have uh, gotten together to say, well, wait a second. Why, what about the prairie? How are we going to save this prairie? And so now there's sort of, uh, well, the, 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 the uh, airport called off the bulldozers. They were scheduled to go on November 1st. Now that's um, being held off until March 1st. 
Uh, in the meantime, folks are trying to figure out a way to save Bell Bull Prairie, and there's been we've we've talked about it on our show. Uh, there's been a lot of press about it, which is one thing the airport didn't want. Well, too late for that. Um, and uh, and now we'll see what happens. And there have been a number of meetings, and there's going to be another one. Uh, I got a media alert the other day about the next public meeting to save Bell Bull Prairie is scheduled for this Tuesday. December 7th, Pearl Harbor Day, um, 2021. Six to, six to 7 p.m. Central Time. Um, and um, there's a, a Zoom link. You can go to uh, org and find out all of the information. Um, and I just posted the direct link up in the stream, too. Okay, great. Chat. Um, and... Due to the increase in the COVID positivity rate and hospitalizations, uh, county organizers have decided the meeting will be held on Zoom only. I can't say I disagree with that decision. Um, the meeting will include updates on legal, uh, because it's also in the courts right now. It's, uh, you know, there's, it's a three-pronged, maybe a four-pronged attack. It's legal, legislative, uh, there are meetings, and there's also uh, the court of public opinion. So I'd say at least four different avenues that are being explored uh, to save Bell Bull Prairie. There's going to be information about a fundraising campaign. I think it, I don't know if it's the same one that we talked about on the show to, to defray mm-hmm. the legal costs. Next step for people, how people can help and other updates. Um, so by Zoom only, 6 p.m. December 7th and as Peggy said she has put that out on our social media, or at least in the chat here, and it's in the chat, yeah. and we'll we'll add it to uh, our social media. So, wanted to uh, to get that out. Uh, and speaking of uh, legislative processes, um, we um, found out this week that uh, our in Elmhurst, there's some interesting things going on and i'm trying continuing to continuing to go on continuing to go on all or right continuing not to go on depending how you look at it excuse me um yeah our friend nicole virgil as you know has been fighting there for six years um to be allowed to put a hoop house and grow vegetables in her backyard speaking of sustainability and food sustainability um and uh, and got uh, thwarted by the city over and over again. Took the measure to the Illinois General Assembly, as you know, last this past summer. Gosh, it's still this year. It's still 2021. It's hard to believe it's still 2021, and all this is going on. And um, uh, they passed a law that uh, the again, it's uh, what what I always I always want to call it the Right to Garden Act because that's that's how I think of it. But that's not the official title of the act. But it was passed in the Illinois General Assembly. Uh, so now, what the city of Elmhurst did uh, to throw—they found a loophole. Yep, they're 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 putting the speed bumps in there because that's uh, what they do. Um, and uh, I, I had had a little communication with. Um, with Nicole. Yeah, with Nicole this week. And she said, uh, yeah, they're trying to discourage me. 
um, because they're what they're, what they're they're proposing is that a hoop house um, be 120 square feet. Uh, yeah. And as a lot of people have written in to the city, and like they've had 150 emails or so uh, from folks saying that's not big enough. That doesn't really accomplish what we need to accomplish. Um, and, yeah, and that's the that's the loophole that they're going after. Of oh, now let's just restrict. Okay, you can put it up, but we're going to make sure it's really small. So the other week. They put it on the agenda, and she went to testify, and it never came up. They uh, they said, "Oh, uh, well, we didn't, we didn't have, we don't have the time to get to it today." Um, and so they did it uh, a continuance to this past week, and she went to the meeting. She sent me something uh, just a few days ago. She said uh, she went to the Tuesday meeting. Uh, they gave us another continuance. Um. And they're, now it looks like they're not going to do anything until January. Um, and Yeah, they heard part of it and didn't finish the discussion from what I could tell. Right. And some of the commissioners in the city of Elmhurst support the 400 square feet that most people are asking for. They think that's a reasonable compromise because mm-hmm. uh, apparently a lot of municipalities say 500 square feet. I don't know why they wouldn't go with 500. It's a, it's a suburb. Elmhurst yeah. has land. It's not like the city of Chicago. There's actually space. Some places, well, you know? And, and and part of the problem also seems to be even the headline on the article that ran in Patch. And the Elmhurst, ar- pa- Elmhurst panel divided on bigger garden tents. They keep tents. calling it a tent. Uh, you know, and it's a... Okay, let me just say that the Patch article is kind of ridiculous. All right. Um, yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad they covered it. But first but of all, calling it, a tent. calling it a tent is really ignorant, um, and it diminishes the effort mm-hmm. to grow food exactly. in, in your backyard. It's almost as if the, <laughs> the, the uh, well, and, and, well, and the other thing that the author of this article did, the reporter, oh, wait, the reporter uh, did, is uh, reports which on, is David Giuliani, Patch Staff. Um, is uh, he reports on the testimony given, uh, and then later on down the article says almost, oh, by the way, there was this law passed in Illinois this year, and not drawing the connection between the woman who testified, Nicole Virgil, who got the law passed. It was almost as if, yeah, this person wants 400 square feet in uh, the hoop houses here in Elmhurst. Oh, by the way, did you know there was a law passed in Illinois? This um, yeah. just doesn't pull yeah. any of the parts together at all. So that's why you and I are here, Peggy, to pull these mm-hmm. things together. So not yeah. only does does uh, Nicole have to pass the law, then she has to go testify. Then she has to go help tell people, you know, if you want to do this in Elmhurst, you should probably write to the city council because uh, they're going to make it so restrictive that it's useless yeah. um it's saying here at a commission meeting now this was december 1st it was the article at a commission meeting tuesday member kevin burns noted more than 100 comments favored expanding the number to 400 square feet why was 120 square feet chosen he asked this is council member burns said a comparison with other towns showed 500 square feet was common several of the 
council people liked 400. Um, but then this is weird. He said he doesn't see a similar passion for other types of tents in town. But another member of city council didn't want it to exceed 120 square feet, saying it was going 400 was going to an extreme. Quote, the larger structures could present a safety concern, especially if they're set up improperly, and the city must treat all tents equally. Tents. What? Anyway, I think I misspoke here, so I apologize for that, um, because I'm looking at Nicole's note. And I'm not sure what the patch article says, but she says they came up with all kinds of questions and concerns, which they now need city staff to explore in detail. They have continued the meeting to give city staff more time to explore the topic and have continued again until Tuesday the 7th. So it looks like this Tuesday also the 7th, there will be a continuance. Um, and, uh, and tongue in cheek, Nicole writes to me, it's a good thing because we really enjoy these meetings and are looking forward to more. Wow. Good luck, Nicole. Yeah, good luck with that. I, I think she's going to prevail. I yeah. really do. Oh, yeah. I, it just, yeah, it's it's just going to be painful. It's a reasonable uh, ask of uh, the city council, 400 square feet. Uh, they could easily do 500. When we maybe we'll talk to Robert Couric. I saw he he joined us there and in preview, and maybe he'll uh, when we get to his segment, he'll uh, he'll weigh in on that as well. Um, and basically, uh, what's going on right now is an effort to discourage people from doing mm-hmm. this at all. Yeah. So that's frustrating, and and we're sorry about that, and we hope this gets resolved this week. That would be great. Mm-hmm. So, um, way to finish off the year, getting it resolved. That that would be a good thing. Uh, well, and obviously she's not going to have a hoop house up this year. It's too late for that. So that would be an anticipation of 2022, putting it up mm-hmm. towards the end of the growing season here to extend the season into the winter, so that her family can harvest vegetables all through the winter. So there we go. Uh, so getting back to fall. Um, really interesting story, not surprising story in uh, National Geographic. Uh, headline is fall foliage was disrupted by climate change. It might be the new normal. And the idea is that uh, uh, this past October was the world's fourth warmest October in a 142-year record, according to uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh, the eight warmest Octobers have come in the last eight years. Surprise! And uh, in the Northeast, which, of course, is famous for fall foliages, as mm-hmm. is the Midwest. What? Sorry? All the leaf peepers that come out. Oh, leaf peepers? Is that what they're called? Out in, out in the Northeast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And uh, from Vermont to North Carolina, fall foliage appeared to be behind schedule this year, continuing a long-term trend that, according to one recent study of maples by researchers at George Mason University, has pushed the appearance of fall colors back more than a month, a month since the Mm -hmm. 19th century. Temperature is not the only driver of that, according to the National Geographic article. Precipitation or lack of it, extreme weather and insect infestations all play a role. 
As climate change affects all those factors, it's making the timing of peak foliage harder to predict. And of course, in the Midwest, in other places, that's an industry. Yeah. Well, and and beyond that, I think what's really interesting in this article, um, it's not just, oh, when do we get to see the colors? But it's saying um, it's disrupting the annual cycles of growth and the rest the trees undergrow every winter. What that means for forests, how well trees grow, where they can live, whether they can keep storing carbon at the same site is still being sorted out. On one scientist says we ought to be concerned potentially not just about timing of change for autumn, but whether or not it portends some forest collapse. While nobody wants to be the sky is falling kind of person, we do understand these changes are the plants telling us something is just not right. Yeah, it affects the uptake of nutrients uh, because mm-hmm. it's not just a matter that the leaves die and fall off the trees. As they change color, they're releasing chemicals into the tree to prepare the trees for winter. If it takes too long for the tree to get prepared for the winter and it gets whacked by cold weather, what's that mm-hmm. going to do in terms of tree mortality? Uh, and other issues. I mean, and then can the trees bounce back in the spring? We always say, oh, the tree goes to sleep, it wakes up in the spring, and everything's great. Um, Not necessarily so. The leaves aren't turning pretty colors for our benefit. No, not really. Okay, Uh, that's it for now. We need to uh, get to our guests because we have uh, a lot to talk about with Robert. It's gardening time. It is gardening time. So uh, if you're uh, interested in permaculture techniques, if you want to call it permaculture or you want to call it something else, as I as I mentioned in, in my blurb on um, uh, Schmetta blurb? book, sh- my blurb on Schmetta book, um, that's my new name for uh, FB, Schmetta book. So uh, uh, Give us a holler, uh, and you know where to find us. You're, you're on there uh, in the chat room, and we hope you join the conversation. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy. Wait, wait, that's the wrong one. Is it? Oh, no, that's the right one. Okay, sorry. Thought I had, had the wrong uh, breakup. So, yes, I know. Would you, would you look in there into, into the file and see if, <laughs> see if I got the right one up here? Okay, we'll be right back. Spring seed and soil treatments to summer foliar feeding to fall stubble digesters, Blazing Star provides microbial tools from Tinyo Biologicals for natural and organic farmers. They have solutions for home gardeners, too. And Blazing Star also offers agroecological education and consulting, especially for permaculture work in Zones 4 and 5. Learn more about these great folks and great techniques at blazing-star.com. When I'm with an older tree, you know, and there's just something about it that draws you to it, as similar to the ocean, draws you to it. And when I see a big tree and I'm going to climb it, I enjoy that moment, and I'll give the tree a big old hug. My name's Chase Ferris. I work out of the Clackamas office just outside Portland, Oregon. I've been with Bartlett Tree Experts since October of 2016, and I'm a climber. I was kind of surprised and taken back by the, the quality of equipment and the amount of effort that goes into keeping everyone safe and keeping the jobs productive and making sure that you are progressing every day. And I enjoy that because I like to learn. 
I like the raptor and we, we use it quite a bit out on the west coast. Our trees are pretty tall and the, the raptor is great for saving energy, allowing you to get into the canopy with minimal physical exertion so that you're fresh and ready to climb and do what you need to do You know, when you're 65, 70 feet up or higher. So at my office, I feel like you could take just about anyone, put a crew together and send them out to a job and have it be successful. And that has to do with trusting the people you work with, feeling safe around them, and knowing their strengths and weaknesses. Every tree needs a champion. Now, Your mic's be, off. It would be better, you think? <laughs> um, welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy. No, no, I was just messing with you. I want to do... <laughs> Okay, sorry. Well, uh, so Domenico the Alessandro. Yeah. Before we get to you, Robert is watching, and he says, "I was in Ann Arbor on the day of the game against Ohio State. It was a zoo. Congratulations." I'll bet you. Was he? Were you at the game, or did you just? Uh, no, he said he was in in, in Ann Arbor. Probably for something else completely different. Yeah. Hey, Robert, I'm going to ask you to tilt down just uh, or tilt up a little bit so we can see a little bit. Of, like well, this? There we go. Perfect. There you go. Okay. Absolutely perfect. And then when we get to the wider shot, you'll have a little more headroom. But there we go. That's Robert Couric, folks. And um, he is the author of the book I hold in my hand, Sustainable Food Gardens, Myths and Solutions. Um, and it is uh, – published by metamorphic press which is your outfit um yes and um you got to understand about robert that uh he had this is not his first go-round um he's authored uh a number of books uh i now i can't i is it 18 or 19 books? 18 I, this is number 19 oh this is number 19 okay Ooh. Okay. Yes. And uh, so uh, I will have to fix that because I, I thought this was number 18. Uh, yeah, I thought so too. Yeah, well, that's because I wrote it on my blog post. So, uh, But that's why we ask the questions so we can get it absolutely yes. right. Uh, including a book called Designing and Maintaining Your Edible Landscape Naturally, which was written in 1986 and amazingly is still in print. Yes. Um, that's quite Pretty popular. Yeah. Uh, well, that's, that is a, a great accomplishment. Um, I, uh, I know authors who have had books in print for a couple of decades and it's, it's quite a feat, uh, to have it that long. Uh, so you're going on like, uh, what, 25, no, 30 years, uh, whatever. I can't count. Uh, a but lot. at any rate, <laughs> a lot, a lot of time. Um, and, uh, so I, the first question I have to ask you, it's because uh, Designing and Maintaining Your Edible Landscape is a very popular book. It's so, sold over 50,000 copies. Um, as I've told people on this show many times, uh, horticulture is not lucrative. Uh, very few people <laughs> make uh, <laughs> a fortune in horticulture or, or even do that well. Um, uh, among them, in terms of authors, is... Um, uh, is uh, Tracy DeSabato Oust, who sold, I believe, a couple of hundred thousand copies of her well-tended uh, perennial garden. Perennial garden. Yeah. On its third or fourth edition by now. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and another guy who's made a fortune is um, William Radler, who um, who bred the knockout rose. Um, he's he's rich. 
but uh, <laughs> so, so the question is, if you already have a successful book like that, why did you come back and do sustainable food gardens? Can I take a step back? I don't hoop. Uh, you don't. The, uh, uh, I'm sorry? <laughs> a hoop. I don't have a hoop, a greenhouse. Oh. But the, cannab- the legal cannabis growers in our county, the hoops are much bigger than 400 square feet. Yeah. But they're allowed to do that. Yeah. But anyway, let's get back to well, the this book. Is a, this is a, a backyard in Elmhurst that we were yeah. talking about. Right, right. Yeah, well, and, and, um, and, that's, and, that's, and that's part of the point, too. They're trying to make it so onerous that people give up on it. Um, when you yes. when you realize that it's only 120 square, and as you're saying yourself, that's really not enough. I mean, how many how many gardens do you have that are 120 square feet in in your own yard? Um, yes, y- that's the size of my dining room. I measured it right. uh, the other <laughs> week. Okay, that's crazy. So, all right, we we'll, we'll get away from that, but let's get to your okay. Why did you do this? Well. People have been asking me to do a sequel to the Edible Landscaping book for a long time, and I've been accumulating data for a long time in my files. And so I thought, well, let's put it all together and cover what I've learned in the last 40 years, um, which is considerable, I think, compared to my 1986 book. Uh, so I was very happy to do it, and the pandemic, pand- uh, <laughs> pandemic, whatever you call, it. yeah, pandemic made it possible. And so I spent uh, 15 months, 40 hours a week, plus uh, putting the book together. Um, And I want to give you some uh, kudos uh, in in the book because you look at things you wrote in the past and you say, you know what? I got that wrong. Here's what I think about it now. And and I think that's also one of the reasons uh, you did this because you wanted to set the record straight on some of the issues, correct? That's right. I don't know of any garden book that says I made a mistake. Here's the new information. <laughs> so I'm a first. <laughs> wow. Well, give the man a ding for that. All right. In light of new data. Uh, right. Exactly. But that's exactly. it's not so, many. Go ahead, Peggy. So what so what is something that's changed since you wrote your first book? What what have you changed your perspective on found new information on? Well, there's a concept called dynamic accumulators, and it's very popular in the alternative sustainable gardening world. Uh, I developed the phrase in 1986 with a three-page chart on dynamic accumulators. And that's uh, what it means is a plant that accumulates more nutrition of a certain type than other plants. Now, legumes are famous for accumulating more nitrogen than other plants, Mm -hmm. but other plants like comfrey might more calcium in some plants. But the chart in 1986 was based on anecdotal information from six other gardening books. And uh, since that time, I realized, well, that's anecdotal. Let's find the science on this topic. Mm-hmm. And so I put together a list of uh, dynamic accumulators based on Dr. James Duke's uh, work out of the USA, where he actually analyzed the tissue of hundreds and hundreds of plants, mostly edible, and uh, came up with a ranking of uh, dynamic accumulators. And what's fascinating is in about uh, 20% of the time, it matches my list in 1986, but in 80% of the time, it's new information. Wow. 
Uh, and there was something else that uh, you talked about that I thought was really fascinating that you sort of uh, debunk in this, and it was the idea of how different varieties might have started. You, you talk about scrap heaps, and, um, um, and, and, and it was a popular way of explaining um, how varieties of different food came about in, in that people would throw – uh, food into the compost pile, and they would uh, 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 they would germinate and then interact with each other, and then you would get new, new varieties. And you also say in your book that, and, and I'm not sure, and that was something you had talked about in your past as well. Uh, but yes. that that's probably not uh, as big a deal as some folks used to think it was. Yeah, the original book was written in the 30s based on a study of a garden in Mexico that was what we call now polyculture. And uh, he based the idea that uh, dump heaps was the title of the chapter and uh, that dump heaps were the place where people threw out scrap and the first basically hybrid type plants were generated. Like, you know, today, if you uh, take your compost and throw it out in the garden and something comes up that looks like a squash plant, it usually is a, a zucchini with a hard skin or something like that. But occasionally it's a new variety of, of uh, squash. So that was the idea in the 30s. Now more and more people are arguing about that. But uh, I like the concept, so I'm going to stick by it. But uh, <laughs> the, scientists, <laughs> the scientists nowadays uh, say otherwise. Well, it, it, it... Boy, it resonates. You know, it's a feel-good story. It's like, uh, yep, throw it out in in the compost heap, and they'll hybridize, and you'll come up with something that nobody's uh, ever seen before. But uh, let's let's get to the idea, though, of uh, permaculture and some. First of all, the word itself. You like sustainability. You like sustainable garden versus. Uh, uh, permaculture or regenerative gardening. There's, there's, there are other ways of putting it. Why do you stick with sustainable gardening? Well, because I think it's got more of a history. It's a word that I've been using since 1975, uh, although we also call it appropriate horticulture in 1975. But sustainable is uh, something I consider a more accurate definition and less personal um, permaculture as a word comes from Bill Mollison as a cross mm -hmm. between the word permanent and agriculture. And it's an important note that his first books were geared towards agriculture, not home gardening. And it's since been adapted to home gardening in one way or another. Uh, and permaculture is getting to be more common and a buzzword. But I think in a lot of cases, they don't have the science to back up what they're talking about. Well, and, well, and you also, I was going to say, you point out that that um, permaculture was started in more tropical climates or in warmer climates. Yes, Bill Mollison liked to travel a lot, and he lived in uh, New Zealand, and he liked to travel to tropical countries a lot. And so when I went through his primer book, which is a, is about as thick as mine, uh, I had all the, the drawings and I found a huge majority of those drawings were based on tropical ecological dynamics. And that doesn't follow in the temperate climate that we have in the U.S. It does in southern Florida, but not in most of the country. And so that 
I tried to take in this book a step into the temperate climate, basing the concepts, the basic concepts that we both share, permaculture in my own work, but getting it more towards a temperate climate. Uh, so let me ask you that question. Can you really have a permaculture garden in a temperate climate like Chicago? You're in Northern California, so you're uh, you're you're somewhat different from w- what we have here in your climate because, uh, as you mentioned, you're maritime influenced, uh, but mm-hmm. you're fairly far north. Uh, but what about Chicago, where uh, uh, and and the northern tier in the Midwest? Can you have a truly permaculture garden? Possible. Um, one of the things that permaculture people have gotten into is what they call forest farming or forest yeah. gardens where they base the model of your garden on a, quote, natural forest with large trees, smaller trees, shrubs, ground covers, and then the fungal activity of mushrooms and such. Um, But it turns out they're basing those images and those dynamics and those designs on systems that are more tropical-like, where you can fit a whole lot more plants in. Um, in other words, in Chicago, I think you might have met less trees per acre than uh, parts of California. But in parts of California, the redwoods are so uh, prolific that the number of species of trees is uh, not very much. So one example would be uh, in the tropics, you can have like uh, f- up to 400 variety trees in a hectare two acres about. And then uh, in the in the New England, it's closer to 40. So one-tenth the variety. Um, so forest gardening is a major proponent, at least in my area, for pr- the advancement of permaculture. And I have the greatest uh, concern about whether or not that's appropriate. Uh, one of the things you talk about, let's, let's get into the forest gardening a little bit because you have a whole chapter uh, devoted to that, and you talk about uh, so-called companion planting or guilds, as you refer to them in your book. And, Which is a permaculture term. And, yes. And uh, y- you talk about some ways that it might not be advantageous for people to put plants too close together, certainly uh, in regard to fruit trees. People want to have under planting there. And you say sometimes that can actually be a problem. Yeah. I, I planted my first uh, forest garden in 1978 and I found it was a total pain because it was very difficult to walk amongst the ground cover and work around the shrubs and, and use uh, harvesting and pruning with that kind of diversity amongst and under the larger trees. So I gave up on it uh, and put the trees in a separate area. I planted them as groves. They didn't look like orchard. They look like groves because you don't have to have fruit trees equal distant in order for them to produce. Uh, But gardening in our area is becoming quite popular, but I find it impractical on the physical level, much less the environmental or or ecological dynamic. Uh, What about the idea that plants, uh, and you you, you talk about this, you actually have some charts in the book, the benefit that plants can give to other plants simply by being in the vicinity? Well, there's... uh, 
you can't get an advantage to shade in the sense that some vegetables uh, grow quite well in shade. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wouldn't mix too many vegetables underneath the tree, but maybe in a shady uh, zone north of the tree. Uh, so you have things like uh, what we call arugula now. Um, mm-hmm. It can take a huge range of shade, maybe only two to four hours worth of sun, and it's totally happy. Uh, in the old days, we called it rocket, and now it's called yeah. arugula. A rocket Ro- arugula, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I have the, well, Peggy and I both have the perfect yards for arugula because neither of us has a, a ton of, of sunlight. Uh, I want to, you, there, I have a number of uh, things I want to show here. Uh, you have a lot of graphics in there and, and it helps explain some of your concepts. And you mentioned to me that this is one that you wanted to talk about Um and uh, you're a root guy. You you're fascinated by. You've written books about yeah. roots. Yeah, you've written books, two books. books on roots. Yeah, <laughs> two books. Yeah. Um, and the, this chart, I I've liked it. It's so important that I put in the book in three different places for three different reasons. But let's start with the fact that the left hand side shows the length of the root in inches. Now, is this, excuse me a second, um, Robert. Is this for trees, vegetables, anything? It's, uh, uh, trees, uh, and it, uh, particularly important to bare root trees. Uh, bare root trees in the spring, uh, late winter, and plant them out, and then people s- treat them different ways, and that affects how their roots grow. So the further up on the left side, the longer the length of the roots. The further on the right is the n- longer time in weeks. Um so if you take a look at the red line, you'll see that if you um, have an unpruned tree, you plant it, never prune it after planting, and you water it during the summer, it can get up to 70, 75 inches of growth within 10 weeks. Now, what's important about that? Ten weeks later, where do people put their compost, their water, their mulch, their fertilizers? Nowhere near that that seventh, uh, 72 inches. So it, it explains why we should expand our irrigation, our, our cultivation, our, our mulch beyond the area that you planted the tree in because the roots would prefer to grow there. Now, the next thing on the chart is that unpruned trees have longer roots after 10 weeks than trees have been pruned right after you plant a bare root tree. Um, so the, the dormant pruning is about 60 inches, so that's a considerable difference, about a foot um, difference between unpruned trees that are watered and bare root or dormant trees that are watered. Now, I'm a proponent of summer pruning to help control the size of trees and in some cases promote fruiting. Well, if you summer prune a tree, the roots are affected because that helps dwarf the tree, and you're only getting 40 inches of growth on the root system in 10 weeks. Now, if you go down to us, so to speak, in the in the West, and we never water, and the trees have to deal with drought throughout the summer, you're getting less than five uh, inches of growth sometimes during those periods because of the lack of water in, in part. 
Okay, so what I want you to uh, explain to us, looking at this, what is the preferred? Why, what are the advantages of each of those levels? Okay, an unpruned tree develops the most uh, ambitious, uh, prolific uh, system, and that really helps the tree get off to good start. So what I prefer is if the bare root tree you buy has a decent scaffold, a good branching system that's not totally out of whack, never prune it the first year. And you'll get the best growth of the root system, which develops the best scaffold by the second year. So that when I plant a bare root tree, I prefer not to prune it. But if you got one branch that's totally out of whack, or one branch that's too close, or one branch that's broken, uh, you can prune it. Um, but the least amount of pruning you do in the first year, the better the root system will be, and therefore the better the top of the tree will be. So like in dormant pruning, uh, sometimes those branches are in the, quote, wrong places, and you need to prune them back to encourage wider growth, let's say. Uh, you're going to reduce the growth of the root system, and it only grows, uh, you know, five feet uh, as opposed to seven, six, seven feet. Um, so I would say uh, on a dormant tree, you don't have to spread the mulch out as far uh, beyond the trunk uh, by the 10th week than you would with an unpruned tree. Uh, Next and, level is... Oh, okay, go ahead. Go Sorry. ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Go no, ahead. no, no, no. You, you finish this because then I can ask my next question. Okay. So I like to prune trees in the summer to c control growth. In other words, out, out in our area at least, the plum trees just grow gangbusters. And they put a, a lot of vertical growth that people tend to call suckers or water sprouts. They are neither, but they can be controlled by summer pruning only. Because if you prune the vertical growth in the winter only, you'll get more vertical growth. This shows that summer pruning helps stunt the tree because the root system is reduced to 40 inches compared to 60 or 70 inches. So that pruning the tree reduces the root growth, but that also helps in a little bit of dwarfing effect. And it helps maintain uh, easier, or easier to harvest growth. Okay, so... What you're saying is uh, maybe when you first plant a tree, just leave it alone. And then you can yeah. apply these uh, various techniques afterward in subsequent years. And, of course, if you're in California in a drought, you're going to get that blue line at the bottom anyway. So there's not a whole lot you can do. Is that right? Exactly. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that gets us to a question about roots in general. Uh, and misconceptions, uh, we're talking about myths in this book, myth, misconceptions that people have about how roots grow. And um, I think a lot of folks, as you mentioned in the book, think that a tree has a root that, and, and actually a lot of plants. They, I a taproot. Yeah, a taproot that a goes tap root, straight right. down. And uh, that's how things grow. But that is not necessarily the case, is it? Right. A lot of the illustrations you see show the root system below the ground equal to the shape of the tree above ground. But that's not true. Two important ways that roots actually grow that's quite different. Uh, tap roots are only about 5% of the trees have tap roots. So the rest of the trees have what's called laterals that grow sideways and they oftentimes grow much wider than the foliage. 
so that in a heavy clay soil, they might grow only half again as as far as the foliage. Uh, in a sandy soil, three, four, five times wider than the foliage you see above ground. What's important about that? Well, where do you, again, where do you put your water? Where do you put your mulch? Where do you put your compost? Um, f- much further away from the tree, and we prefer to do it up to, or I mean, at or beyond the drip line. So the drip line's the line straight down from the edge of the foliage, and that's where, from then out, you have the most feeding roots because they're young roots. Uh, the older roots, if you dig up a tree that's five, ten years old, the first foot, two feet, whatever, of the root system has bark on it. It doesn't even have feeding roots. So the root of that distance of one to two feet, let's say, can't absorb any nutrition whatsoever. And if you keep putting your water and nutrition there, you will contain the roots, and they will have feeder roots, but I call it uh, tree bondage because they would prefer to have their roots at and beyond the foliage of the tree. The second level is that roots are quite, in a sense, shallow in that in most trees, the top 6, 12 inches of soil has anywhere from 10, 50, I mean, 40, 50, 60, 80% of the entire root system. So one aspect of this that, it's the impact of this idea is that people buy these waters. I forget what they call them, probes, where you're supposed to stick them in the ground, turn on the hose, and water the roots down there two feet deep. Well, one thing's wrong. The water comes out too fast for the roots to absorb, and it floods the soil pore space and hurts the tree. And two, it's below the level of most of the roots. So I would throw those things away. Um, the other aspect of the so-called shallow root system is that the more you cultivate in the top two to four to six inches, the damage you do to the feeding roots of the tree. So this is another uh, way we look at the importance of no-till. No-till can be justified in many, many ways. It's getting more popular, but one of the aspects is cultivating the top two to four, six, eight inches with a shovel is going to do a lot of damage to the feeding roots. Yeah, that's a really good point. You're uh, obviously a fan of of no-till, and and we've talked about it on the show uh, uh, a lot. Um, and just to be clear, what you, you have a mature tree, and and we've said this on the program too. If you want to water that mature tree, you're watering out at the canopy and beyond because that's where the feeder roots are, right? Yes. Yes, and, and we have a problem in the West where people don't move their drip systems out beyond the, the distance where they planted the tree. So you need to ideally add more drip tubing or move the drip tubing out um, to an area at or beyond the drip line. As as the tree matures, too. Yeah. You're, you're, yes. You're moving that out, and this is where your nutrients go. And, and so... It, it, and we're going to break here. I'm going to ask you a favor, Robert. Can you stick with us uh, into the next you hour? Bet. Okay, because yep. I, I we saw... have a, we've got at least one question from a, a viewer as well. Let's yeah, go. and it's okay, a, it's, great. A, it's a question about uh, uh, that you're going to like mycorrhizae and mycelium, and uh, so um, we'll we'll get to that. But uh, so what about what do you say about mulch? Because 
mulch rings, you know, uh, arborists uh, and encourage mulch rings around trees so that we're not getting all that competition. But there, uh, if it's close to the tree, how much good do you think it's doing? Well, when you first plant it, it's very good. Uh, yes. But as the tree matures, you don't need it there because the the uh, roots develop more and more a bark type covering coating, so to speak, and they're less likely to absorb uh, water nutrition there. Um, so that's a really important thing. But I found a a woman who did some research in in the Midwest on mulches for her thesis. Uh, believe it or not, they did a thesis on mulching, and in the thesis, she believe found me. that once you go, yeah, 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 once you go above four inches of most, uh, not straw, but other mulches are a little bit more gravelly or compost-like, um, you're wasting your time and money. That the percentage of drop in water conservation beyond four inches can't be justified by the cost or the volume of the mulch. So that if you're making compost uh, and you put down um, more than four inches thick, you're wasting your compost, or if you have to buy it, you're spending more money than you need to. Yeah, and and, and uh, I, I get that, and, and I certainly wouldn't tell people to compost deeper or mulch deeper than four inches around a tree. And, and uh, the arbors uh, I've talked to say, you say, how sh- big should the compost, or rather the mulch ring be? And they say, as big as you're willing to make it. You know, that's, that's yes. the thing. <laughs> it just, if you can wanna, afford to make it. Right. If you can take it out to the drip line and beyond, yay, because that's going to uh, provide a lot of benefits for the tree. But most people have yards and they want to get lawn in there, and it, then it gets complicated as well. All right, that's Robert Couric. He is the author of Sustainable Gardens. Actually, I have a, a photograph of the book cover that I'll pop up later. Uh, we're going to continue this conversation when we return. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. A big hello. From all of us here at Bartlett Tree Experts. Whether we're up in the trees on the ground, in the office, or in the lab. We really do love our work. We feel so lucky to share our passion for trees with you. And we want to say thank you for choosing us as your tree service. We look forward to working with you. Season's greetings. Feliz Navidad. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. And And a Happy New Year. Welcome to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio with just a sip-son of humor. Or is that a dash? Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Here they are again, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. 
All I need is good food to eat and make me healthy, wealthy, wide awake. Lettuce, tomatoes, root and bacon. What about those sweet potatoes? All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good tools to make me music, porches, lawn serene. Give me all that I can take. And welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Uh, this is a bonus conversation time with Robert Couric, uh, who is the author of Sustainable Gardens. You know what? I told you I would pop that up. Let's do that right now. There it is. Uh, Sustainable Food Gardens, Myths and Solutions, published by Metamorphic Press. And uh, we should mention... Right at the the get go here, Robert. Uh, we we and we did talk about this in, in the first part of our show that you you've got a deal for folks uh, if they want to get the book now before the end of the year. Uh, the list price was sixty nine ninety five, basically seventy bucks, uh, and until yep. Jan- until January first, it's fifty dollars. It's only and and there's four fifty dollars even, and it, it's like no four- shipping and handling. Yeah, I mean, it's a 400, almost 500-page book, so certainly uh, worth the uh, the price of it. Uh, but you and, all- and, and it's cheaper than at that at that price. It's cheaper than Amazon. So one of my mottos on the on my website: buy from the source, so writers can keep on writing. Buy from the source, so writers can keep on writing. I I, I gotta tell you, I. That definitely go. gets a ding. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not a huge. I'm not a huge fan of Amazon. Never have been. And uh, I, when I put links up uh, on my uh, my own website on my blog posts, I usually do them to the author's webpage. Mm-hmm. It's like if, if the author wants to sell it through Amazon, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. You can do whatever you, however you need to do it. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to link to you, and then you can sell it from from there. Yeah. And that's and that's basically what I do. Yes, Peggy. And, and well, we've been talking about trees, and we'll be going back to talking about trees. But just for folks listening, um, I'm just looking at your table of contents here: the basics of sustainable gardening, food gardens, diversity, stability, and invasives, nurturing soil, conserving resources, forest gardens, container plants, free fertilizers, root dynamics, companion planting, three sisters gardens, attracting beneficial insects, designing sustainable gardens and sustainable garden play. So you cover a, a whole lot more than trees in this book. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The, the full picture. Yeah well, yeah. well, you know, we could have started anywhere and gotten sucked down a rabbit hole. In this case, we started with trees and got sucked down that rabbit hole. Great questions and comments from readers, uh, from, from uh, viewers as well here. Yeah, Domenico uh, is, uh, okay, you're a landscape professional, Robert. You're a designer. You've been doing, you've done all kinds of designs over the year. I like the idea, uh, what you say uh, uh, in your, uh, on your website, that uh, you received much of your training in the School of Hard Knocks, and that, yep. uh, and you're still trying to graduate. Uh, I like that. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, but you have designed uh, all kinds of of different uh, gardens, as you say, um, water gardens, paths and patios, uh, arbors, habitat gardens, uh, home playgrounds, outdoor barbecue areas, deer-resistant gardens. I don't have to worry about that much in uh, the smack in the, the middle, middle of Chicago. In Chicago, no, I don't even ha- I don't even have rabbits. I mean, I, I, oh it's, my, no, you have rats. I do have rats. Yeah. <laughs> For your uh, compost. Yeah. 
but uh, so uh, we got a, uh, a couple of great comments, one from another landscape architect, uh, Domenico D'Alessandro. He says, in the landscape industry, when tree saving is concerned, it was the standard practice to use the drip line as demarcation point for construction activity. Uh, then we were surprised when the trees started to suffer and in many cases died. Uh, great, he says also great discussion. So yeah, he's right. You've, I've seen the photos. I actually have a garden presentation where I show photos where they put the plastic fencing around a tree and they have it maybe six feet out from the tree. Right. And you go, oh, that right. tree's a goner. That tree is a yeah. goner because they're going to dig all around that. And even when they do put in, we're having this battle in Chicago right now because they're taking down mature trees to put in water lines because they cannot figure out a way that other cities have figured out how to put in a water line and not kill a tree. Um, it's, it's, it's a crime. Uh, that, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, what's ironic is they put that circle around the tree six, eight feet out, and that's, that's where the least amount of feeder roots are. So well, they're protecting the trunk of the trees from physical damage, but they're not protecting the root system. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. So let's let's get into a uh, let's get to Greg's question, uh, Peggy. You want to actually from Audrey? Okay. So Audrey says, Robert, have you explored how tree roots interact with mycelium, and also how tree roots of a mother tree can interact with its seedling? Yes. It's actually quite new information, but uh, Susan Simand, I think, Simand, S-I-M-A-N-D, she's been working on this for decades. She's up in Canada. It's only become popular in the last two to five years. But basically, fungal activity acts as an Internet between plants. Uh, In my book, it's also vegetables. In other words, uh, the species. Uh, it was fava beans that were attacked by aphids, sent a, kid, a chemical signal via the mycelium to other fava beans. Those other fava beans got the message that aphids were around, and they started producing chemicals that aphids can't deal with, so that the fungal activity was the conduit for the information. Now, the problem with all this is the, um, uh, what's the word when you, uh, anthropomorphic. The anthropomorphic, they say, oh, the trees talk to each other. Well, I don't know if you call it talking, but there is a, yeah, communicate. That's a good way to talk about it. Well, I would say um, I would say it's, there's a chemical reaction that happens if one tree produces a chemical and, and the other tree can sense or, uh, or, or partake of that chemical, it's going to have a similar reaction. Is that right? Yes. And uh, it goes so far as uh, some trees feed off the decomposing wood of a dead tree and a dead root system via the fungal activity. So the, the dying trees assist the younger trees. Well, in the Pacific Northwest, uh, as you probably know, and uh, and I've been up there a, a bit, uh, there are things called nurse logs. And what mm-hmm. happens is a tree falls yeah. down and it decomposes. And as it decomposes, trees start growing out of the trunk of that decomposing tree. And they call it a nurse log. And it feeds those new trees uh, for as long as the remains of the tree are there. You got it. It's sort of like a slow form of mulching. It's wonderful. I mean, it's it's it better than mulching because it's natural it's form. Na- now, natural, natural yeah. hugel culture. Yeah. 
Uh, Hugo Cole. Right. Oh, and we're well, gonna we're gonna get well, into the, we'll get into the, yeah, <laughs> yeah in, in just a second. But I want to show this because you were talking about aphids. You sent me this, and I'm trying to figure out why you wanted to look at this particular graphic here. It's an aphid. Well, right, and, and you can and, see the black line that goes down to the black circle, which is the conduit f- for the sap. And this old thing says aphids suck. Sap. Well, I don't think aphids, aphids actually suck. I think they <laughs> open and close the mouth parts, which are up by their head, and let the sap pressure bring the sap into the aphids and out the back end where that circle is. So that sap pressure is what controls how many aphids a plant can have. So I had a study I found. Uh, that showed nitrogen fertilization of hemlock increases susceptibility to hemlock woolly aphid in this journal Biology in 1991, of all things. And basically, it, it says that the fertilize, the more you get aphids. Well, how does that work? Well, increasing the nitrogen content increases the sap pressure so that the you can have more aphids with an over-fertilized plant than you can with a naturally or normal fertilization. That makes I'm, a, I'm, a lot of sense. And, and, and what you're telling us, though, is aphids have figured out physics, which I was never able to do in high school. <laughs> right. Now, I want to mention something else about tree growth. Um, on fruit trees, at the very beginning of the book, I have a chart that shows how much growth new growth on a tree represents a healthy tree that doesn't need a single addition of compost or fertilizer. So like in our area, at least, apple trees have put out at least 12 inches of new growth, need no extra compost. Hmm. And I've very rarely seen an apple tree in my area that needed compost. So that people are wasting a lot of compost on their fruit trees. And so we have a list, or I have a list of other uh, trees and how far the ro- root grow- I mean the limb growth indicates healthy nutrition. You know what I, I was going to do that graphic. The problem it was really vertical and I knew that it wouldn't show up very well on the screen. Yeah, here, so, right, right, um, right. But that's that is a great graphic and and of course it's it's in the book. Um, speaking well, I want to get to some of the other aspects of of uh, sustainable gardens and one of them is inputs. Uh, you talk about, uh, and you know, speaking of fertilizing, over-fertilizing, over-mulching, uh, all of that, the, the goal of a sustainable, and let's use the quotes, air quotes here, sustainable garden, right. is to use as, as few or as little in the way of inputs as possible. Uh, how does one do that, especially on a smaller scale? And, and for well, viewers, what is an input? What is an input? Right. Well, uh, I, I know in our area, at least, people buy an awful lot of compost. It may be uh, material recycled from the green waste that the city picks up, but nonetheless, it's compost coming into your yard. Now, some people can make enough compost from the scraps they have from their vegetable garden or the leaves they rake up uh, in the fall, but not everybody can do that. So there's another option, and that is uh, cover cropping or green manuring, where you grow plants to improve the soil and the nutrition without having to import, so to speak, anything but the seed. Okay. Uh, now, how 
how effective is that on a, let's say, a suburban or an urban scale? Very good question. It's not as effective. Okay. It takes a bigger area. <laughs> but what, what co- cover you, crops or compost? Uh, cover crops. Our green manures are better because you can get more nutrition by digging in the foliage. Yeah. Uh, you do uh, damage some roots, but it's a way to get quick nutrition by incorporating the foliage directly in the soil. I now, can tell. Let me stop back, you for a second. Let me just stop okay. you for a second. I apologize. Uh, and for instance, in my yard, and, and as I've mentioned to you, it's a tiny, tiny city lot. If I were to use cover crops and green manure, I would be planting it in places where I was probably going to endanger some of my perennials because I have such a small space there. So you have like a little one by two cover crop. Right. Exactly. And, and and it seems to me that probably doesn't do as much good as. Uh, my just leaving the detritus and the leaves in the fall to decompose over the winter and use that to provide uh, nutrients. And of course, I have a compost pile, um, that, and, and it's not possibly big enough to add compost to the whole yard, even my tiny yard. Uh, but I can spot compost, which I do for vegetables and other things. Does that seem like a reasonable uh, yes. co- compromise? Yes, excellent. Now, I want to mention in the back of the book, I talk about uh, in England, they have a, uh, people that like to garden without bringing in any manures whatsoever. So they're vegan or vegan. I don't know. I said vegan garden. And they don't bring in uh, blood meal, bone meal, or manures. And they get healthy gardens. And how do they do that? They have a section, usually about one quarter of the vegetable garden is in the soil improving cover crops or green manures. And so they rotate around the garden plot so that one quarter is grown with a cover crop for one year. The next year you might grow tomatoes there. The next year maybe potatoes. And then maybe the next year back to legumes. Uh, In my book I have a seven-step sequence for how you could do that. Um, but it still takes a little bit more area than than you, some people have. Yeah, it's an area I, I is, is mention, everything. Go ahead. I might mention when I traveled in England, almost nobody has a backyard garden. They have what they call allotments, which we call community gardens in America. Mm. And because they're on public land, um, they tend to be small. I mean, I saw a lot of allotments. There were only six by twelve or ten by twenty, uh, and they were doing this vegan uh, gardening where they rotated the cover crops to improve the soil and kept the vegetables happy. Okay, and you mentioned uh, a second ago, uh, or it came up, Hugo culture. I mean, the only reason I talk about it is so I get to say Hugo culture. Um, <laughs> And we have a couple of people, or or, or actually one who's writing about this, uh, Jeannie, says, I tried Hugo culture but was not satisfied with the results. Is there a size or way to do this that I'm missing? Several years later, that bed uh, is awesome, though. Well, I'm I'm betting the bed is awesome because the one thing you did write was add – materials that were going to decompose on the site, and you're probably just – feeding that soil right now with that. But as you mentioned in the book, Robert, uh, Hugo culture can be a little bit problematic. 
Yeah, it's problematic. Uh, one, it takes an awful lot of material the way they do it now. To, about here, at least, there seems to be a contest. How big a log can you bury in a, how big a trench to have a hugo culture? And so that's, quote, long-term decomposition. But basically, most people don't have that much raw wood so to speak not and in my yard I, I got a few twigs right. but i'm not i'd have to import and again we talk about inputs i would have to import a huge log it's going to take up a huge amount of space in my yard and it's probably not worth it for me yeah i've seen a lot of videos uh by former friends well they're they're friends i knew 20 years ago uh and they're bringing in backhoes digging trenches putting logs in and then covering it with soil and calling it hugo culture. Well, what I did uh, 15, 20 years ago was I took the scraps, so to speak, from an arbor truck where you have green material and woody material mixed together. And I was going to do ornamental planting for my deer-resistant garden. And I, I mounted those scraps, so to speak, the mulch uh, that people would use, into piles two, four feet deep and i capped them with the six eight inches cap of of quote neutral soil native topsoil and what happened is things grew like gangbusters i think because in our area at least you get bottom heat from the decomposition the composting of that material you get some bottom heat and the roots grow even better through the entire winter um but Basically, as it gets older, it sinks down and the roots get into the, quote, native soil. But that's very different than taking logs and huge sticks and burying them in trenches. Uh, one person in my book did a study for a city where they use leaves in a, a hugelkultur type setting. And it took uh, 24 working hours to do a small area burying the leaves. So... So it can be very time-consuming. Yeah, and uh, if it's time-consuming, there's a lot of us are are saying, uh-uh, that's not for us. Um, It's interesting. We have a couple of comments here. Alexandra says, uh, if you're harvesting well into fall, it's also hard to get enough growing time for cover crops to to sprout, and uh, and she says, for a small urban garden. Uh, And Robert uh, reports that his greenhouses are vegan. Well, good for you, Robert. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, and uh, uh, Hillary says, uh, I'm sorry, Mac says, most of our community gardens are even smaller than British allotments. They're four by eight plots. That's what you see in a lot of community gardens here, certainly in the Midwest, meaning that, yeah, the, the U.S. community garden plot is often four by eight. Um, well, you yeah. have to import in that situation. You do have to import stuff. Yeah. I call it intensive gardening where you have vertical growth as opposed to horizontal growth. And when you get away from intensive gardening, you can use the width of the garden to grow the cover crops you need. Like in our area, you can get two to four or five crops of buckwheat. Not A buckwheat is a green manure where you dig it in when it gets four inches tall um, and so you can improve the soil in the summer. You don't have to just wait to the fall or winter. Yeah. Um, and Domenico, Domenico what, yeah, go ahead, yeah. Peggy. Yeah. He's taking he up says, the challenge. Yeah. And then follow with Jeannie Davis. They're kind of related. Domenico says, I've got an area where I'm placing logs. What would the optimum 
what would be the optimum soil depth cover followed by Jeannie saying, and what does that burying do to the no dig area? Right. Well, what people do is they bury the logs and cover it with a six, eight, 12 inch layer of soil. So they're growing the plants in the first year minimum in the soil that they put over the logs. Um, so it's, you would need to bury them. I don't know how deep but at least 12 inches I think so you have a reasonable amount of time for the logs to begin to rot uh, before the root system of the plant gets to that material um, I haven't done it because it's too much effort and it's too much material coming from outside the garden in and I can get the arbor chips for free uh, from a tree service and they don't go to the dump all right um this is going to end up being it was it was going to be a half hour this is going to be an hour conversation here so we're just running through to the bottom of the hour i want to pop a couple of other things in here because these are things you talk about in the book and i was kind of fascinated by this chart frequent versus infrequent irrigation and one of the things uh you 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 one of the bits of advice you give which i really thought was interesting was about watering and how people when they're blasting with their sprinklers are actually sometimes watering too much because the plants can't handle it. And that if you did it on a uh, 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 pulsed watering where you, you turned it on for a few minutes, turn it off for a few minutes, turn it back on for a few minutes, you might actually be more effective. Do, do I have that right? Yes, you got it. And they used to do that in the old days in the botanical gardens in new England where the gardener would turn on a sprinkler and then go garden, come back, turn it off, go garden, come back and turn it on. And so that the pore space kept some of its oxygen so that you didn't get the stress of a water-sogged pore space damaging the, the young roots. So what are we looking so at this in this chart? Gra- yeah, thank you. Oh, this chart, we see that the dark uh, blue is watering on a frequent basis, but small amounts of water. In other words, you don't just turn on the hose and pour it on there every time you water. You do infrequent, I mean, frequent irrigation, but tiny amounts of water so that you maintain that pore space. In the top 30 centimeters, you have more growth than the next 30 to 60 in, uh, centimeters. And basically, the growth in the top 30 centimeters is uh, considerably more root growth than than infrequent irrigation. And still down 30, 60 inches, I mean centimeters, you have a reasonable difference. But what's important about this chart also is look at the 30 versus 30 to 60 the 30 is considerably like three quarters more growth than what the water is doing 30, 60 centimeters down. So this is another approach to no-till in the sense that you don't have to water that deep to keep the plants happy. That's uh, very interesting. Would you say the same thing is true uh, for uh, because we, we tell people when they plant a, a, a new tree that you should have a drip hose right at the root ball. What about that? Well, what I like to do when I plant a tree, bare root or not, is put the drip tubing at the interface between the so-called hole and the soil that's uncultivated. I plant only on mounds, but I still put the drip emitter 
at the edge of the planting area. And then as the tree grows, I either add more drip system or I have another drip system waiting there, so to speak, to irrigate the new roots. What about the idea that uh, you're supposed to have, in terms of depth of, of watering, you're supposed to have roots chase water down so that you don't have to, you know, w- w- some people say that if you if you water your lawn uh, every, you know, for 15 minutes, um, you're not allowing those roots to get deep enough because it's telling the, the, the lawn the, uh, blades that, uh, or the, uh, rather the roots of the, the grass that they don't need to go chasing it because it's right on top. Yeah, the difference is that infrequent irrigation is meant to replace the amount of water lost by evaporation uh, and transpiration so that if you start out in the spring where you have an ideal moisture level of your soil and you do small amounts of water frequently, the soil never dries out so it doesn't go into the stress of cycles of drought and overwatering, and you get more growth. Okay. Well, uh, this has been uh, fantastic. I'm so glad you stuck around. Uh, we could go on uh, with all kinds <laughs> of stuff in here, but uh, what I would tell people, if you're interested in this, you should pick up the book. It is Sustainable Food Gardens, Myths and Solutions by Robert Couric. Um, and you can go to his website, and I'm going to, because as Which we talk, robertcurric.com. Right, robertcurric.com. But it's spelled not like Katie Couric. Katie Couric spells it wrong. It's spelled <laughs> K-O-U-R-I-K. Well, why don't we just look under you there? Wait, I can't get my point this way. Yeah, or there. Right, I see it. Yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> I know that's what happens. You got to do it this way. Um, I wanted, uh, before we go, uh, something you wrote that I think is really good advice, uh, and you're trying to help folks do their gardens right, uh, your golden rules for edible landscaping. You have a a lot of lists in the books, uh, and uh, and again, index indices here that you can use. You can learn about invasive plants. You can learn about plants that will help you fertilize your plants. Um, But here are your golden rules for edible landscaping. First, plan in advance. Make your mistakes on paper, not in your landscape. Two, start ever so small. Three, plant your annual vegetables and herbs no further from the kitchen than you can throw the kitchen sink. I like that. Four, be lazy. Let nature work for you. Five, time and money spent early mean time and money saved later. And six, try to grow plants that serve more than one use. Uh, those are yes, multiple good. purpose. Yeah, for instance, you talk about cilantro. Yeah, cilantro. If you let it go to seed, is coriander, but in the process of blooming, it's very good at attracting beneficial insects. Yeah, and we didn't even get to the beneficial insects part, but uh, oh well, that will have to be for another day. Robert Couric, thank you so much for being thank with you. us. Thank you. And uh, and spending the extra time with us. And uh, again, don't forget that. Uh, if if you order the oh one thing we did not mention if you order the book before this Friday, the tenth you can get it for the Christmas season you can get it uh, before Christmas, um, so if you want to do that and get it for yourself or for somebody else and you want it before the the big holiday, um, do it by this Friday. But otherwise, you can get twenty bucks off. Uh, by ordering t- until the new year, until January 1st. And you can do that by going to the links 
that Peggy has posted uh, and uh, at MikeNovak.net. Did I get that right? Thanks for having me. <laughs> okay, yep, Robert. You got it. Okay. Robert, happy holidays to you. Thank you. Thank yes. you. You too. Enjoy. And enjoy don't get too much snow. <laughs> oh, oh, you know what? We're going to talk with Rick DeMaio coming up, our meteorologist. You might want to oh, watch good. us about yeah. the lack of snow in the middle of the country. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. As I said, meteorologist Rick DeMaio is next. From spring seed and soil treatments to summer foliar feeding to fall stubble digesters, Blazing Star provides microbial tools from tiny biologicals for natural and organic farmers. They have solutions for home gardeners, too. And Blazing Star offers agroecological education and consulting, especially for permaculture work in Zones 4 and 5. Learn more about these great folks at blazing-star.com. Andrew at Urban Greens. Hey, this is Joel. We are an indoor hydroponics farm in the Twin Cities. We grow lettuce, greens, and herbs and deliver them year-round. And for the last year or so, we've been growing with Happy Leaf LEDs. Yeah, before that, we were using LED light bars with some of the big guys, Philips, GE. Uh, we ran into Poly a little over a year ago at a market outside yep. Chicago, and since then, we've been on the Happy Leaf train. Yep, and a year in, we are extremely pleased with how they perform for us. We have some rainbow chard here growing. We get excellent growth. The growth is quick. Leaves are thick, plants are sturdy, and uh, Happy Leaf LEDs have worked well across all of our plant varieties. Yeah, we use them for our seedlings as well, and that's honestly where we've seen some of the biggest improvements. Seedlings under Happy Leaf are coming in full and thick, thicker stems than what we've seen under the other lights we've used. And welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. I don't see Mr. DeMaio yet, so what I'm going to do, uh, and you can text him if you want. I assume he's going to be I here. Be, I will be finding. Uh, but I want to show you something that uh, I'm glad I prepared this. I picked this up. Uh, we're going to be, first of all, look at this uh graphic. It is um, blizzard warnings in Hawaii. If you look at the orange. Uh, yeah, I know. They've got high wind warning, high surf warning, high surf advisories, and flood watches uh, on most of, on all of the islands. Looks like flood watches, all, all of them. But blizzard warnings uh, in two spots on the big island uh, at Hawaii, which is really nuts. And so, uh, there's this. Let's make sure the audio is on. There's this as well. 
Although much of the country hasn't had much snow in recent weeks, Hawaii is about to experience its second snowstorm in a few days. The National Weather Service wow. in Honolulu, Hawaii, Absolutely has released amazing. a report for the highlands of the Big Island of Hawaii. Several inches of rain fell on Mauna Kea, prompting authorities to close roads due to ice and snow. Tomorrow there may be up to four inches of snow, according to the National Weather Service. Snowstorms significantly reduce visibility at times during periods of zero visibility, the National Weather Service warns. Seeing a winter storm means that there is the possibility of significant accumulations of snow or ice that could affect the summits. Anyone planning a trip to the summits, including tourists, should keep an eye on the latest forecasts and consider postponing their trip until the weather improves. While most people don't associate the tropical paradise Hawaii is known for with snow, they are surprised to learn that it snows in winter due to the elevation of these volcanic peaks. Mauna Kea is the tallest of these at 13,803 feet. Halakala on Maui is much lower at 10,023 feet. Because of this difference, the island of Hawaii will snow more frequently than the lower island of Maui. In just one storm last January, the island of Hawaii received two to three feet of snow and deeper snowdrifts. <laughs> okay, welcome back, and there is Rick DeMaio. But you you knew all this, of course, Rick, uh, although maybe a lot of people don't expect uh, snow to be on Hawaii, but it's a mountain. So... Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, by the way, sorry for coming late. I was walking my dog and got kind of sidetracked there. Uh, <laughs> That's but, okay. Um, yeah, well, I mean, a couple of minutes late. I apologize. But, no, no, uh, you're yeah, fine. I mean, you're fine. As, as the video That's okay. mentioned. It's so windy um, out there right now. <laughs> yeah, and I, I was actually dodging the bands of rain and sleet, and I was timing it so that I can give him his 20-minute walk so that he wouldn't feel uh, completely gypped. Aww. There he is right now. Hey, Jax. He's 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 got that look like I didn't get a long enough walk, did I? <laughs> no, he's he doesn't seem happy at all. It's like, come on, dude. <laughs> no, but yeah. <laughs> so he's he's one of those, and that was the second walk of the day. But um, generally, when I walk him in the morning, it's easily about a half hour to forty-five minutes. It was only twenty minutes. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, Mauna Kea uh, and Mauna Loa to the tallest peaks on the mountain of, um, or the island of Hawaii, which is the big island, um, easily exceed 11,000 feet. And what was really kind of cool is that's the point also where um, Charles David Keeling first set up his uh, measurement devices to observe carbon dioxide. So um, Mauna Kea is the site where uh, I think we have 12 of them in the Northern Hemisphere that measure um the purest form of the atmosphere, which is um, an environment that's surrounded basically by water. Um, and there's not much in the way of, you know, disturbance from a standpoint of human interaction. And the fact that you can get 420 parts per million in a pure environment um, tells you something like of what it would be most likely in an environment where you have a lot of people. Right. right? Yeah. So but the bottom line is that's the area where they measure carbon dioxide. So when you see the Keeling curve, display that's the curve that goes up and down like that uh that site that you were looking at was where it is actually recorded but nonetheless it's important to point out that this wavy jet stream pattern that's developing 
out over the Pacific Ocean um, is for sure expected to initiate some wave motion downstream, which will eventually create a little bit more variable weather for us here um, in the Midwest and particularly west of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, you mentioned the other week, which was very cool, that I just remember uh, you talking about the number of fronts that were going around the globe. There were seven yeah, at the time. Are, yeah, are we still in that pattern? Um, we still are to some degree where we're on the back edge or the back side of the pattern that's been with us now for um, almost a month. Uh, the month of November bears out the fact that we were kind of near normal temperature, but really when you get a progressive pattern like that, you never really tap in the Gulf of Mexico moisture. Um, we stopped connecting to remnants of weak tropical waves off the Gulf of Mexico pretty much back in late October. So there was really no uh, influence of Gulf of Mexico moisture. And because of that, we ended up with less than an inch of rain um, in the Midwest and in the Chicagoland area um, in the month of November. That's about the change, but it's really not going to be a change of any significance because the overall upper jet stream, that's the one above the troposphere, which is up in the stratosphere, um, that still does not show any signs of what we call the polar vortex beginning to develop. Um, once you begin to see some of those perturbations above what we call 50 millibars, which is the upper levels of the troposphere, once you begin to see some perturbations like that develop, then you can kind of initiate some surface development. Uh, but we don't still see, we don't see anything like that. So even though we'll get some decent rain today, um, some fairly significant cold weather tomorrow um, and into Tuesday, um, we go right back to being somewhat at or above normal for the next week and a half to two weeks. So yeah. there really isn't still any significant um change from a standpoint of really big, strong cyclones developing in the southwest and moving into the middle part of the country. Yeah, we're going to see that in one of the maps later on, but I want to put this up because this is pretty stunning, the snow yeah. depth. in the. There's no snow. There's, there's no snow in the United States, basically. Yeah, this is, this is the lowest amount of snow that we've had um, in 18 years, since back in 2003. And to be fair, I mean, if you would have gone back about two weeks ago, you would have had more snow uh, across areas of Wyoming uh, and parts of Montana. But the, the thing about it is um, the ability for our winters to hold on to snow seems to be occurring more and more where they can't. So you can get snow, but it kind of goes away um, pretty rapidly. And if anybody wants to get a little bit more in-depth um, with this particular website, uh, if you just Google NOAA snow depth, um, it'll give you not only the amount of snow, uh, the snow cover, but it'll also give you the liquid amount in there. Um, it'll give you the seasonal snowfall. And what's really cool is it also give you things like condensation and sublimation, which means that the snow that's on the ground, it's fairly dry, um, which means it can also evaporate, which is sublimation below freezing. Um, into the atmosphere very quickly. And that's what happens generally in areas of higher elevation. So places like Colorado, Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana, even though they've had some decent snowfall, um, very little of it has been down on the valley floors. Uh, and even in California, where they had some decent rain and snow early this year, 
um, they've lost a lot of it very, very quickly. Yeah, let's look at some of those maps uh, that you sent here about what's going on in the western part of the country. And I just posted that Snow Depth website, by the way, up in the feed if anybody wants to. Yeah, thanks, Peg. And and again, there's a lot of really good other information on it that we can, you know, talk about in the period of time that we have. But this map here, being that we were focusing a little bit more on what's been going on out west, uh, this is the last 30 days. And when when you start to see red showing up in areas of eastern Colorado through Wyoming and Montana, uh, that's on the other side of the of the Rocky Mountains. So basically, what's been going on is we've been stuck in this pattern of a very strong jet stream coming out of the Pacific Northwest, Southwest Canada, bringing copious amounts of moisture in that area. And because the pattern has been so fast, the winds coming over the mountains have been producing downslope winds. So that downslope wind, as it actually uh, descends the mountains, we call it a catabatic wind. So the winds actually compressed at the surface. It increases the movement of molecules that increases the temperature. So you get a downslope warming effect, and they call that a Chinook wind. Chinook is an Indian term for snow eater. Um, so all of those areas basically in red are generally on the other side of mountain areas. And when you start to see 9 to 12 to even 15 degrees above normal um, from a period of November 4th to December 3rd, um, that's, that's a little bit unusual. And on, on top of that, it's hard to keep, um, it's hard to keep a snowpack in place when you're that warm. Um, in the month of November. Yeah, those were the maximum temperatures. Here's the average temperatures, and there's still uh, a fair amount of red there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because the average temperature means that it didn't really cool off much overnight. So when you start to see temperatures of, you know, 10 to 12 degrees above normal for both an average low and an average high, um, that's pretty amazing stuff. In fact, last week, Jordan, Montana, um, hit 78 degrees when their normal high is 33 so you had wow. all-time records being set. Yeah, I had all-time records being set in parts of Wyoming um, and Montana. And that doesn't happen in a couple of days. That happens over the course mm-hmm. of several weeks. So you need yeah. to need to melt the snow. You need to dry out the ground. And then you need to have the, the pattern persistent so that the warm air builds. And each time you do develop uh, that strong jet stream, two things happen. A strong jet stream keeps the cold air up over Canada, and then it also allows the air to warm on the other side of the Rocky Mountains. So there'll be many times where places like Billings, Montana, um, is warmer than us in the month of January. That's not uncommon, uh, mm-hmm. but um, this is this is something that we've seen with a very very strong La Nina pattern, and that's pretty much what we're in right now. Yeah, yeah. this is this is really remarkable. I don't think I've ever seen the Western United States this this dry uh, for this long. Now, granted, um, this is not uncommon, but what we've also seen is the fact that when you do get dry now, you get really dry. And that's one of the things that are related to uh, a a changing climate is small scale or quote, regional changes in climate seem to be coming almost more continental wide. Um, Mm -hmm. And, this is always the concern about when you get into these type of patterns. It's it's the it's the the yin and the yang. You're getting really dry, but what's really important if you notice that area of the um, Pacific Northwest, uh, especially the Olympic Peninsula, that one little area of purple yeah. showed that in the month of November, 
there was between 35 and 40 inches of rain. In fact, Quileute, Washington had 27 inches of rain in the month of November, uh, which was the second wettest on record. The really weird thing about this, Mike and Peg, is that record um, precipitation in the month of November happened during an El Nino year when typically you have a very warm flow of moisture um, in off the Pacific Ocean. This happened during a La Nina year, which is not supposed to happen. Mm. But what we've seen happen this year is that the jet stream um, has gotten so fast, so so quickly, I shouldn't say so fast, but has intensified um, in speed so quickly due to the fact that that area of the North Pacific was so warm during the summertime, um, it almost acted kind of like an El Nino jet, where a La Nina jet is supposed to just bring you, you know, stronger wind flow, but the La Nina jet actually latched on to a higher level of moisture, a higher level of warmth, and due to the fact that that area, you have such a tremendous amount of um, upslope from the surface up to almost 9,000 feet, you can get that much rain. So this is this is one of those really weird anomalies that keep occurring. But when you look at the precipitation departure from average across, what is it, 90% of the Western United States, that one area of the Olympic coast yeah. um, was 15 inches above normal, which is really remarkable. Yeah, you see even more of it here. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah and, and, and any way you want to describe it, it, it's above normal. Now, the one area across the northwest part of Wyoming, that's Yellowstone and the Tetons, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and they've had a fairly decent shot of early season snow as they normally do. There was a couple of weak waves that came out of um, the West Pacific. Those were due to typhoons. But the typhoon season ended a little early um, in the West Pacific, just like the hurricane season kind of ended early here in the in the Atlantic. And that had more something to do, uh, more so something to do with the overall upper level winds. Uh, they were just mm-hmm. too strong to allow these systems to maintain themselves, even though they did become powerful storms. Uh, they were ripped apart a little bit too quickly. But the bottom line is you still had some pretty decent rains. Um, the good news is that the rains occurred in areas of Washington state and in Oregon where they needed it uh, because obviously they had that terrible drought and heat wave over the summertime. Uh, The bad news is they got too much of it. Um, And that's one of the reasons why you had some mudslides. So again, from a planning purpose standpoint, it becomes so difficult to try to get, you know, your, your, some sort of public opinion to be in, in one sort of, you know, you know, avenue or street that says this is what we're expecting um, with the changing climate. It's similar to have, you know, having the goalposts move back and forth with what to do with the COVID pandemic. People say, okay, so it's this week now, what do we do? So this is more of what we're beginning to see is these just incredibly high rates of variable weather, uh, where again, when you look at the fact that this area of Northwest Washington had their second wettest November on record, but it was during a La Nina event. So if you're a, if you're a college student and you're trying to go through and look at you know um, your hypothesis is um, you know near to above normal rainfall across the Pacific Northwest is associated with you know El Ninos in the southern oscillation of 1.5 or greater. 
And then something like this comes along and you go, what do I do with my data? <laughs> do yeah. I throw it out? Yeah. And then when you do that, you'll have someone in the front row go, how do you account for that? Right. <laughs> and it's, it, it's, it's really tough. It really is tough. But the bottom line is um, uh, the, the norm is not norm anymore. And uh, you, uh, and, uh, it's, you we zero uh, in here zero on in Colorado. Here, uh, Colorado. It's a uh, very interesting. Yeah, and, and and Peg could talk about this more because she sent me a really fast, fascinating article, which I'll 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 let you talk in a second, Peg. But what's really amazing about this is this is three months, so this is ninety days of data. And if anybody wants more detailed information on this. Uh, this is what my students at Loyola use when they do their projects for their national parks. It's called the Western Regional Climactic Center. So at the bottom there, you see WRCC, just like here in the United, in the Midwest, we have the MRCC, which is the Midwest Regional Climate Center. What's amazing mm-hmm. about this particular site, and they do, I think, a much better job than the Midwest Center does, um, although that may change because now it's going to be taken over by Purdue University. I think they got a little bit better handle on how to present data uh, before it was more or less a bunch of, of academics who took it over because no one was doing it. So when you have the university in charge of it, uh, it sometimes makes it a little bit better um, from a standpoint of user friendliness. <laughs> but what you can do with the WRCC is you can literally go through every state and get individual maps, which is you can get 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, 120, 180, a whole year. And you can really kind of, you know, zoom in on what you are trying to um, assess here. And again, when you look at this, this is less than 25% precipitation over a three-month period. And I think it went down as the second warmest um, climatological fall and the second driest climatological fall ever um, in northern parts of Colorado. And and again, that's not really talked about too much because you're going into the winter season. If you were going into the spring and summer season, everybody would be up in arms. Um, but snow changes everything. When you see snow, you go, oh, look at all that wonderful snow. But in the end, the total amount of precipitation is still, you know, well below normal um, in some of these areas. And you can see this is like basically about a quarter of an inch in some locations. It should be pointed out, though, still areas of New Mexico and Arizona and Southern California did have some pretty decent rainfall early in the year. But again, the fall, as it typically is in the desert southwest, is one of the driest parts of the year. And this map bears it out very well. And uh, Peggy, do you have uh, that uh, story? Um, in? I, post, I posted the link, um, but it's from the Colorado Sun. Uh, from the 2nd of December with the headline, yes, it hasn't snowed yet in Denver, but it's Colorado's meager snowpack that should worry you. Denver hasn't seen snow in 225 days, but climatologists say they're more concerned about the dry conditions in the high country. Um, Let's see. Uh, According to the U.S. Drought Monitor, the entire state is facing drought conditions and about 40% of Colorado is facing Quote, severe to exceptional drought levels, further depleting low reservoirs. Snowpack is below average, too, with the lowest levels in Colorado's southwest mountains, according to the USDA. And basically the concern being, um, you know, the snowpack's so low, Denver hasn't seen snow. Um, They're trying to explain it, but the snowpack and the lack of 
snowpack affecting the reservoirs that feed the Colorado River and elsewhere across the state. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and a couple of things to point out there. The 225 days, um, I think it was more so due to the fact that they were in that drought um, mm-hmm. beginning uh, last year. So it it's not uncommon. I've seen Denver before not have snow through November and December. I don't think that's part of climate change, but the 225 days, I think it's more or less first 100 days that were more remarkable, that they didn't get much at the end of last spring. And that was the beginning of the very dry, warm spring that we had that led into the hot summer. So I think it's, you got to be careful when you look at those numbers and like, how do you kind of like granulate it down? It was the first part of that that was really uh, more impressive. The second part, I've seen them have fairly, you know, dry Octobers, Novembers, and early Decembers. And that can change very, very quickly. Um, However, the bottom line is that Usually when you get those early season snows, um, a lot of that snow is going to melt and go into the lower uh, reservoirs, as Peg was pointing out. And we didn't have that this year. So when you get so later in the year and it doesn't melt, what happens is it evaporates because it's colder out. It's called sublimation. But they want to get that late season snow and they want to get that early season snow because it basically acts like rain. It melts, it goes into the aquifers, um, it goes into the reservoirs, um, and they hold on to it. So um, they're, they're, it, it's amazing how much different they think of snow out there compared to what we do. Now, I think the one, more, the, one of the more dramatic things, is, and I've been seeing this for years, and I usually put it on one or two of my uh, quizzes and my exams, is how the lack of season snow has really hurt the ski industry. Um, and it's that, that one photograph that was in that article peg just blew my mind because, and I don't know if you want, if you have a chance to show it, Mike, but that, that one photograph, um, you literally, there's, there's like no snow anywhere up, except up in the higher terrain. And I've been looking at webcams from Arapahoe Basin, Breckenridge, Jackson Hole. Um, they're skiing. But you got to get all the way up to the higher levels to get to your to get to your run. There's no snow when you get to get you back down to the main resort. Um, so yeah. a lot of those places had to truncate uh, their ability to allow people to ski for Thanksgiving. Usually those places are wide open, and now you're looking at the first and not only that, but the second week of December, and you still don't have snow. So those things um, kind of hurt the economy. Because people look at that and they go, well, why should I go when I got to go elsewhere? I don't want to pay 2000 3000 bucks to go skiing and not be able to ski. Yeah. In addition to that, California has been able to open up. Um, and, and even though they've gotten some phenomenal amounts of precipitation in Pacific Northwest, um, there were four days, Mike. This was amazing. Four days in the month of November that Seattle broke all-time record high temperatures. So they were in the low 60s, and when you're in the low 60s, your snow level is up at 10,000 feet. So even if you did get snow in some of those resorts, it was mush yeah. within a week or two. Yeah. And, that, yeah. and again, you can get the snow, but it, it's all wet. So these highly variable conditions are really affecting um, the ski resorts. So what I, what, I, what I try to get my students to do is to think from a business standpoint of 
how you would run a ski resort in an area based not on climate change, but on climate variability. And that seems to resonate with these students much better than saying, I need to recycle and I need to ride a bike. They, they, they know right away that if they want to try to make sure that they're going to, in the short term, get people to get on board with this, you need a different business model if you're going to run a ski resort in Colorado, Wyoming, or Montana in the next 10 to 20 years. Good luck. All right. All right. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. All right, let's move on to some maps uh, that include even our area of the country. Here's the forecast for, for the uh, – uh, we've got some maps for the next few days here, beginning with Sunday there. Yeah, so if anybody woke up at about 8.30 this morning and heard that dit, 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 dit on your windows, yep. that was sleet. Um, so sleet is snow that's actually melting into raindrops and then falling through an atmosphere that's below freezing. Um, and what happens with an environment like this is the, the, the raindrop will actually fall through the atmosphere, um, cool it down, and through evaporation will lower the temperature, and then that raindrop um, will actually freeze. So it freezes to a and, – and what's really interesting about sleet, people say, well, why is sleet so much smaller than hail? Because most of the time the sleet is falling Literally 100% of its track is basically from, from up to down. Hail goes up and down. So hail goes up and down so it can get, get a lot bigger. of water on it. Yeah, it's mu- and, and it's much, much bigger. Um, but sleet's literally like almost like a ball bearing. So it's a raindrop that freezes. The good news is that uh, if anybody wants to do any driving anywhere in the Midwest today, I think you should be fine. So a lot of green. Uh, so rain with this, but blizzard conditions probably across – the arrowhead of Minnesota. And again, they've had some pretty decent snows in northern Minnesota, the UP of Michigan, the lower P of Michigan, mainly due to lake effect, but that's what you're going to get this time of the year. But as you can see, this is basically all rain for us. On the backside, uh, we get pretty cold. So this system comes through uh, late tonight. The rain should be ending somewhere after about 9 or 10 o'clock. Very windy conditions, very cold conditions. So we'll only be in the upper 20s tomorrow, but really, really significant amounts of lake effect snow, probably um, probably across parts of the northern sections of Michigan, the upper peninsula, the lower peninsula as well. So these are the overnight low temperatures for tonight into tomorrow. Um, and, you know, the normal high is now 37, so we should not be surprised that it gets cold this time of the year. Uh, normal lows about 24 or 25, so this is normal, but This is going to be the coldest day and night of the year so far, which is going to be tomorrow. And then by tomorrow night and into Tuesday, um, it's going to be the first time we are actually walking outside and going, woo, it's cold. Uh, This is going to be a quick walk for any dog. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It was cold this morning. Yeah, right. Uh, One of these things where it's like, I don't think I want to wait for the bus. I think I want to haul a cab or take an Uber or ride or drive to work, but uh, temperatures Tuesday morning will be in the lower uh, the lower teens. Wind chills probably near zero. However, um, it won't last. So the pattern goes right back to being you know progressive again. We have this weak wave of low pressure which comes over us on Tuesday. There's a chance we'll see some light snow on Tuesday. Not a lot. You know, if we get an inch, that should be about it. I think most of it is going to be just basically off and on very light snow. But it could dust the ground. It could be one of our first quote accumulating snows and typically the 7th of december is on average our first inch of snow 
So as you move through this, as we get into um, Wednesday, you can see the pattern becomes very weak in the Midwest. There's some rain and snow across the Northeast. Um, there's another system that's beginning to develop very strong winds across uh, the Pacific Northwest and the Northern Rockies. That'll warm them back up again. Uh, so Wednesday will probably be like maybe in the lower 30s, but then easily as we get into um, uh, Thursday's map, uh, Thursday you can see the warm front beginning to lift northward again. Where's the snow? Uh, very light across the upper Midwest. Uh, no significant snow for us. So the pattern really through the bulk of the week outside of the cold weather during the day tomorrow um, and then the light snow on Tuesday really does not bode well for any significant weather. Good news, though, for Colorado, we finally begin to see some deep troughs develop out across the western U.S. So this will be a fairly significant snow event for the mountains. This will be the first one all year, but you're talking the 10th of December. So they've already eaten up uh, almost a full month of not having snow. But this will help them out quite a bit. And this system, when it comes through us, has been showing some signs of wanting to develop into a significant area of low pressure. You can see when it comes to us next week, um, it's mainly going to be rain. And look what comes behind it. The, the, the high-pressure systems are located out over the Great Basin. They're not coming in from the north. So this is not any sort of polar air mass that develops. So even if we do get some snow here next Saturday and Sunday, it's not followed by any sort of um, significant cool down. Now, we spent a lot of time talking about snow in the Rockies. If you look at the east, if you're a snow person across, say, um, New England, upper into uh, New Hampshire, Vermont, uh, parts of the Berkshires, Hunter Mountain, upstate New York, up around Lake Placid, you don't have any snow on the ground. Even though you've had some decent snow recently, you get right back into a wet pattern. And I think this is where you really begin to get into um, an economic stranglehold is the, the places out east have had just brutal, brutal winters in trying to deal with not only keeping snow on the ground, but making snow. So they get rain uh, next Saturday, which is terrible news for them in those ski resorts. And even that, when you look at the temperatures in the 6 to 10 day, uh, warm weather goes right back into the northeast. And even the 8 to 14 day shows mild conditions extending literally everywhere east of the Rockies. This is all the way, guys, Mike and Peg, all the way into, you know, the week before Christmas. And not only that, but you see temperatures 80 to 90 percent chance of being above normal over the northeast, you're talking about most likely possibility of seeing readings probably in the 50s, if not 60s. Great wow. news for airlines, without a doubt. Great news yeah. for airlines. Yeah. Um, but again, as we continue to talk, you know, more and more about how large-scale weather, you know, trickles down into different regions, um, that's when I think people really begin to understand, you know, the economics of it. Unbelievable. It continues continuing to be warm um, and wet, and I'm hearing myself. Sorry about that. I'm hearing you too. Yeah, it comes back. It happens sometimes. Uh, well, we're uh, already past our time. Uh, thank you. Uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting beginning to, uh, you know, as we get into the uh, meteorological, we're already in meteorological winter, right? No, that's the... Yes. 
no, 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 no. We're we're no, we're we're, we're, in, the, we're in the climatological winter. Yeah, December climatological 1st. winter, and we're getting meteorological winter on the twenty first. Who knows whether we'll have any snow at all in December? We didn't really have anything last year. Oh God, no, we didn't have anything until the middle of January. Yeah. Matter of fact, you look at all this all the snow we had fell in about a three week period of time. Wow. Again and again and again. I remember it was the winter was three weeks long. It was in middle of February, basically. So, all right, Rick, uh, thanks so much. Uh, take care of yourself and uh, have a great uh, have a great week. Yeah, and by the way, I don't know if you guys mentioned this, uh, but to all your listeners, um, I wasn't with you last week because I came down with COVID nineteen, um, and this is even after being double vaxxed and wearing a mask everywhere. Rebecca got it; she passed it on to me. Um, I'm on my sixth day of feeling Menza Menza. Uh, I was really sick for about three or four days. So anybody out there thinking just because you're double vaxxed doesn't mean anything. You still got to protect yourself because uh, this stuff will kick your butt. I'm not in the hospital. I have any breathing problems. I'm fine with that. But I've literally had, I was not in, on any of my college campuses last week. And most likely I won't be for the next three days. So from that standpoint, uh, it, it's it's an incredible uh, burden and it's discouraging because you feel like you can't do anything. Um, so so take care of yourselves. Take, take it slow. And um, I'm still dreaming what that first glass of bourbon is going to taste like when I'm able to do that again. And remember that you were you were double vaxxed, and that probably kept you out of the hospital, or it could have kept you out of the hospital. Let's let's put it that way. It probably kept me out of the hospital and kept me from developing pneumonia, which I've had before, and who knows what would have happened after that. Right? Yeah, well, uh, you feel better, all right, dude. I I, I can't believe Thanks, you're, you're doing this today, and I, I and I I'm so appreciative that uh, you took the time to be with us. Well, uh, anything that I can help you guys out and help people understand the world a little bit better is what I'm all about. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, let's get you back into the classroom. Not yet, but uh, when, you, when you're ready to go. All right, Rick, uh, take care. Uh, and say, say hi to Rebecca and wish her uh, uh, all health from us as well. Mike says hello. There, how about that? <laughs> That's hey, <good>. Becca. <laughs> That's right. Hey. All right, we'll talk to you next week. All right. Wow. Um, you know, so I, I was, go ahead. No, 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 I was watching you kind of looking around. Did, did Legata show up? Yeah, Legata. hold on. You got two seconds. I mean, we're running really late. Hold on. Hey, Hang why on, not? Legata. Come on. We need Legata cam. Come here, hey, everybody. <laughs> I'll just kind it's of hang rare, on to the show for a while. It's a rare here. Legata appearance. Hey, Legata, say hi to uh, to all of your fans out there. Everyone, uh, Loves you in uh, in streaming land, uh, in inner tubes land, and of course she oh, just kind of deals with it. Oh, she's getting a bunch of hearts coming up in Facebook. And I can't People hear you because I don't have the headsets on. But what? People are putting up hearts and likes. Oh, uh, there's oh, and Legata's waving. Okay, and she wants to get out of here. <laughs> she's like, up. Oh. She's like, I'm out of here. I've had <laughs> enough of that nonsense. Would and, and what she said to me was, would you just play the theme okay so we can get out of here uh our thanks yeah you you may dance just keep dancing uh our thanks to uh, everyone on the show today robert Couric and his book is sustainable food gardens myths and solutions here we are again hope some folks pick up a copy of it uh thanks to 
the the ill uh, Rick DeMaio, and I'm so glad he's uh, doing better. Uh, thanks to Kathleen upstairs uh, and uh, doing all the stuff behind the scenes. To Legata, who made a cameo. To Basil, who did not. Happy birthday, Basil. Until next time, go green or... Go home. Uh, Stadler? Yeah, what? Is that it? Yes, it's over. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much. Ah!